0: What is up, y'all? Welcome to a special episode of Comic Book Club. I'm Alex. I'm Justin. The temperature's
1: rising and the X are falling.
0: Oh, there we go. And as you demanded it, we are going to do another deep dive into this week's issues of Fall of X from Marvel Comics. Now, Justin and I taped a previous episode talking all about the Hellfire Gala. We asked you at the end, would you like to see more of these? And pretty much overwhelmingly... You I said yes! Because you demanded it, fans! We're going to do it. Uh, so yeah, we're going we're to try to do this at least for a little while, or at least for weekly, see how it goes. Um, there's two issues coming out this week. Seems pretty easy to break them down. But what we're going to try to do here, as you may notice, uh, Pete once again has recused himself from this Deeper Dive podcast. He said that he's yeah. happy to talk about some issues on the stack. But as frequent listeners know... He's still not in love with the whole Krakoa thing and the X-Men right now and just wants to get basic stuff, which we're cool with. We don't want to put we're him We're cool. In, we're cool. We're cool dudes. Cool. We're honestly the cool dudes. Yeah, there you go. So we're cool we're, as about ice. got two yeah. issues here. Uh, X-Men number 25, written by Jerry Dugan, art by Stefano Caselli, and Astonishing Iceman number one, written by Steve Orlando, art by Vincenzo Caruto. And I think – Why don't we start with X-Men 25? Because Mm. to me, that is the clearest direct follow-up to the Hellfire Gala. There's a bunch of interesting things that happen here, but I did want to talk to you about one general thing first, and this is true for Astonishing Iceman as well, is we get a time jump in these issues. We get it X weeks later, which I I wasn't expecting. I was expecting it to pick up immediately afterwards, but that's not what they do. What do you think about that?
1: Well, it's it's interesting that it's I don't know why it's purposefully vague, like X mm-hmm. weeks later feels like something that's like a fun writing bit to say mm-hmm. X. But uh, I don't know what the function of it is, because a lot of stuff does feel like it picks up directly moments after. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm fine with it from a, a perspective of giving specifically Kitty Pride some time to change and be different, which is what sort of the bulk of the issue is, is about.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I agree. And same sort of thing with the Iceman issue. Now, I guess we're jumping into both of them at the same time, but it is a timeline thing. There's big changes for Iceman as well. So to your point, I think what they're doing here is almost doing like a one year later type thing where it's like these characters have changed in big ways. Off of this horrific, terrible, inciting event, rather than following them directly and wasting time, not wasting time, but like spending six issues on their development, Mm -hmm. let's get to the interesting stuff where they've already been radically changed by this. Mm -hmm. And then we can kind of fill in the gaps in hopefully interesting ways.
1: And and I don't mind playing a little fast and loose with time because you have like Miss Marvel here. There isn't really a gap in time. Same with Forge. Like it feels like. That's like, well, she's going to, of course, go on to um, reconnect with her family or figure that out immediately while Shadowcat needs to um, become a Wolverine Mm -hmm. uh, sort of over a little bit of time. I also would have been fine if she's like, I'm sort of vengeance now right away. The scene we get at the end of this issue is awesome, super violent. I buy that as an impetus to make her change into the Shadowcat persona. Uh, And it happens immediately after uh, after what the epilogue of Hellfire Gala.
0: To give you all who maybe skip the issue for whatever reason a brief plot overview of what happens here. There's a lot of stuff that's going down in the X-Men issue in particular. But like you mentioned, we start off not with Kitty being thrown through the gate for the first time, which is what happens in the end credits scene, if you want to call it that, from Hellfire Gala. But you actually pick up with her taking on a new identity of Shadowcat with a K, not Shadowcat with a C, like she used to be back in the day. Mm. And she's the only one to go through gates. So she's exhausted, and she just keeps real, going.
1: Real quick on that, Alex. Do you think Like, do you think she like really took the time to to write it differently is she i don't even see the moment when she does that but do you think she's no you do like,
0: though you know you get to see so she goes back to gray malkin lane and she's hidden i guess katanas in the floorboard yeah. as one is wont to do and there's a note from ogun mm-hmm. ogun is the ninja character who trained and corrupted kitty pride in the classic 1984 kitty pride and wolverine series by chris claremont and alan milgram I love that series back in the day. One of my favorites. And the whole thing was about Kitty being turned into this vengeful ninja warrior and then Wolverine, of all people, being the one to kind of win her back to the side of good. So it's interesting and a little disturbing to see that she's been hiding a note from Ogun all this time. He's a complicated character, obviously, and they brought him back a couple of times since. but he's a villain. He's not yeah. the person who takes her on the right path. So I do think that points in a certain way, other than, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if Kitty was a, a, a ninja, it points to, she is on the wrong path right now. Would you say that?
1: Well, she's certainly reacting to a, a deeply traumatic event in a way that is not, has never been sort of her thing as a hero. And it's very much a Wolverine thing to do. I, It's treated as like cool. She's cool at the end. Um, And then set up where she's going after Firestar, who we all know has been uh, his because Jean Gray and her last one of her last acts uh, fooled everyone into thinking that uh, Firestar had betrayed the X-Men, but she's actually a mole. The only problem is like Donnie Brosco, nobody knows that she's undercover. Mm. Uh, So that's bad
0: do you think at the end of fall of x we're going to get a mutant rat is going to show up on a windowsill like he does in wait is that donnie prosto that's
1: that's departed but the Departed, I,
0: they both start with d i'm sorry
1: but that's also another example of a character that was so deep undercover that no one knew and that ended up uh being a problem i won't spoil the end of the departed yeah. but the rat lives alex the <laughs> yeah. rat lives
0: The Rat Does Live. I will also give a shout out to something you said when we were talking about this book on the Stack Podcast while we're talking about this moment. I think you really like the fact that going for Firestar immediately, and I also like this, that feels like a big move right here. That's the sort of thing you feel like you'd build to. But I love the fact that we're so propulsively pushing forward with this plot line.
1: And my prediction, going off what I was just saying, is like – They'll fight in the next issue. It'll probably be um, very intense and uh, uh, aggressive with the, each of them being like, hey, why, how dare you betray us? And Firestar being like, um, "I let me tell you something. I didn't. Mm -hmm. And them actually being the connection that allows Firestar to actually provide information to the X-Men and maybe they can become a cool team up, which Kitty Pryde and Firestar would have come up for these like teen characters that were sort of like, what do I do with my powers for most of their time in comic books? And now they're like the uh, tip of the spear dealing with uh, the most recent mutant massacre.
0: You could also, not to get too WWE about it, but you could have a really cool, interesting matchup between the two of them because you have a character that shoots fire and you have a character who turns intangible. So they both can't quite affect each other. You know, if Kitty becomes tangible, she can't touch Firestar. If she is intangible, Firestar can't touch her. So how does that fight go? If you get the right artist on it, it could be... Very very exciting. If it's Stefano Caselli, I think it'll be the right artist on it.
1: Yeah, and speaking of art and and sort of absolute violence, like the fight that we see Shadowcat have at the end, where she's killing all these Orcas guys, is really well done from our an perspective and shows how deadly Shadow. It's like a real showpiece to what a mm-hmm. an absolute killer she um, can and has become.
0: So as a fan of Kitty Pride all my yeah, life, yeah, you're like
1: the number one Kitty Pride. I love to-
0: Kitty Pride. Jewish rep, not on screen, but on the page, yep. always like that. But I also like the character, and I also am always a big fan of, like, the younger characters who are you're in there that you understand. So I love all that stuff about her. I also like the power set. I like the storyline she was in, et etc. et cetera. I felt very emotionally conflicted about this issue for a couple of different reasons. I mean, to jump to the end and talk about the moment that you're talking about here— the way that she kills these Orcus guys is brutal. What she realizes is, oh, the gates are closed for literally everybody, mutants and humans alike. I'm the only one who can go to the gates. Nobody can know that. That gives us the advantage. and She goes into battle mode using this training that Ogun gave her, but also using training that Wolverine gave her that's called out in the text, I think, in a very nice and obvious way, where she proceeds to – stick a guy halfway through the floor and then let him go tangible. She takes a guy's costume and pulls it halfway through him. She literally just snaps a guy's neck. It's a level of violence that I think is reacting to what just happened on Krakoa. And I get that, but it's a lot. The part that made me, and I'm still sort of sussing through my thoughts and feelings about this, even though I've read the issue twice at this point, that made me feel conflicted about it is the fact that it takes place in Jerusalem. Uh, Specifically, Mm. it's the Jerusalem gate. She's Jewish. There's stuff that you can pull out there, but I'm not 100% sure what I'm supposed to get from the setting of that or whether there was any line drawn between the fact that Kitty is Jewish and this fight is Jerusalem, particularly because the first scene, which I also didn't feel as conflicted about, but it starts off with a scene with Kitty and her rabbi sitting on a park bench, a clear visual callback to the conversations Moira and Charles had back at the beginning of house of X and powers of 10. And it's something that's been reiterated throughout the Krakoa era over and over. So we're getting that these very philosophical conversations. And I like that. I like returning us to her Judaism. It did feel like, I haven't read too much into this, but Jerry Dugan apparently has taken some criticism online or a fair amount of criticism online uh, for his depiction of Kitty as Jewish or lack thereof, leaving it mm. off. So I don't know if this was a clear rejoinder to that, be like, yes, of course, I remember that. But there was something about that of uh, that conversation. And mind you, to for anybody who doesn't know, there's this is a bad way of saying it, but there's like different levels of Judaism. There's reform, there's conservative, there's orthodox, there's different types of Mm -hmm. orthodox, conservative, reform. But a lot of that, a lot of Judaism across the board is asking questions and kind of feeling how you feel about religion. And it isn't, as far as I've understood it, prescriptive in terms of, it's not like Christianity or Catholicism where it's like God is good, God is love, that's what a lot of this is about. It's more about like your feelings about things and your feelings about yeah. your relationship to religion. So choose it, your own
1: adventure. I feel like, and it's kind honestly, of, yeah. it's like, uh, it's a, a better way to do religion. I would argue because you can 100% just sort of there's problems. What Don't get me there's wrong. Problems? <laughs> <of> <laughs> yes, course. there's
0: problems, but I do think that's one of the things that I always appreciate about it. And there's something in the conversation. I, I should have written down the exact phrase, but the rabbi says, do you still believe in God? And Kitty's like, I don't know. And uh, I think so. And the rabbi says, oh, good, because God still believes in you. And I don't know Jerry Dugan's religious background. I'm not going to ask that question or anything like that. But... There's something about that conversation that didn't really track with me in Judaism. Like I would expect a rabbi to be like, "It doesn't matter. It's about what you have faith in and what you believe in, and what do you believe in, Kitty?" Like that's essentially what the conversation is getting to. But there was something the dialogue that threw me off, and it felt the same way with the end thing, where again you can draw a line between Kitty at the beginning talking to your rabbi, ending up having a fight in Jerusalem, which. Jerusalem in Israel is a direct parallel to Kokoa. If you want to draw that parallel, there's obviously other things there in terms of um, a uh, a group of humans who have been maligned and gone through genocide, finally finding a homeland that they can call their own. But the other than be like Jerusalem, it didn't feel like... It didn't feel like there was a connection going on there.
1: Well, I'm not a a religious scholar, but um, let me throw out just um, hearing you talk about it and my takeaways from the book. It feels like it's sort of putting religion on the table in a big way and for Kitty dealing with a lot of um, potential guilt and things that she's about the decisions she makes at the end of the issue. But it also strikes me uh, like a lot of religious conflict. Eventually, it moves away from the religious thing and it becomes about the conflict, the violence mm-hmm. sort of becomes the point of it. And I think that's what happens with Kitty. Like there's a way she could have dispensed those people either by mm-hmm. not killing them, the orchid soldiers, by killing them as a choice and just being done with it. But she brutally takes them apart. Yeah, She, she doesn't even use her powers. It, yeah. She snaps a dude's neck, which isn't, her powers aren't that. <laughs> and that's certainly a skill she has, but she could have dispensed them simply. Instead it becomes about Exercising some sort of like uh, emotional thing inside of her through violence. And I think that could be what what the point is about how religious conflict goes that way so often Mm -hmm. and the religion becomes not even a part of it anymore. Just the catalyst.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Um, it could potentially be that. Uh, not that I need everything necessarily spelled out for me, but I wish there was a little more clarity in terms of that, or maybe that is something they're going to explore going forward. I would also say there's a part of me that doesn't want them to explore that going forward, because that's <laughs> such like saying anything about Israel, saying anything about that, including myself as somebody who is raised Jewish, went to Hebrew school, all those things. That's something I'm like, Leave me out of that, please. I don't want to say anything about that.
1: But I also don't think we need to make a larger comment on that. It it just is about what is motivating the character. And I got to think based on this issue, like why start that scene on the park bench and dedicate a few pages to it unless you're going to have that be some part of the conversation for Kitty, even if we don't have to talk about the larger geopolitical issues that uh, it conjures up. (laughs)
0: Sure. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, I would say X-Men comic books, if I had one piece of advice for you, don't wade into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict.
1: Not a great place to be. (laughs) Not a great place to be. But I would say it's hard to divorce larger ideas from the X-Men. The X-Men are always about larger ideas. They're always sort of representing um, a different thing. And especially in the Kraken era, where it is about international conflict and like what it means to to make a big choice as a people it's about genocide there's just a massacre that is like genocidal in the the previous issue that we were just talking about so like these these are these are large topics and you can't not touch them at least a little bit in an x-men whether willfully or not
0: totally conversely i want to say i love the place that Kitty is in, regardless in the storyline, being the only person who could go through the gates, being the only one that can get information from place to place, that she needs to keep it hidden. Um, That's exciting to me. That's a good, interesting new status quo to follow.
1: Let me ask you about that, though. So this is something that has existed from the beginning of Hickman's run. Yeah. And we don't know if this was always the intention that to put Kitty Pride at center after her first iteration in the Krakoan era was sort of like, I'm a pirate. I sort of do fun things in a way, like a little mm-hmm. bit of like playing dress up, if I may, not to insult our pirate listeners out there. Sure. But, uh, but now she's is if that was the intention all around and now she's become this sort of force of vengeance, like do who's who in the X-Men world orchestrated this? Is it Krakoa itself and if that's true, and Krakoa, we saw, pulled Cypher off the board right before this massacre, presumably to save, them, save him, D- did the island know this is coming? Mm-hmm. And this was always a plan?
0: It seems like... So something we did not talk about with the Hellfire Gala, there's a very brief scene with Destiny where she, right before she walks to the gate, she says something <laughs> to the effect... Bye, Don like, dying. Yeah, bye. <laughs> bye. Last words Meek, here. There's a meat grinder right over here. I know about it, and I'm walking into it anyway. She says something to the effect of, like, when the X falls from the sky, that truly will be the end, or something. you know, typical Destiny stuff. But I do wonder, because there's been all of these things going on in the background that we've slowly had peeled back of Destiny, Mystique, and Cypher working together, and of course Cypher communicating constantly with Krakoa, that it would seem to me that, yes, Krakoa does know what's going to happen. Destiny knows what's going to happen. Cypher seems to know in some sense what's going to happen wherever he is as well. So yeah, it might be kind, – kind of we talked about this the last episode, where – Krakoa might be the one that spirited all of the mutants away to some sort of safe place, potentially the same safe place that they, I guess, Krakoa is it they, probably, uh, put Cypher and might be manipulating the gates to try to get this end result that Destiny has seen to give everybody the best advantage over Orcus.
1: Well, and I think, like, on that, like... Professor X is the one who's like, it was a meat grinder. They're all dead. And it's like, what are you basing that on? That's not how. Why do you think that just because you can't sense them? And I think that maybe points to a great flaw to examine in Professor X. That He's like, I can't feel this. So they must be dead. It's like, dude. Think about other people for a every second. Time,
0: every time I don't see my friends or children, I assume they've walked into Dead. a meat grinder. Meat
1: grinder. A lot <laughs> meat of meat. Grinders. Why are they building all these giant meat grinders?
0: That's my question. Unnecessary. Mayor Adams, you're going yeah. out of office. Stop with me. I actually would put a passive to him to be like, we need giant meat grinders <laughs> yeah. all over Central Park. Here's
1: where it's going to be. The, the furthest right subway gate is always going to be a meat grinder. So if you don't <laughs> want to die, don't go into the furthest to the right gate. But I think if Krakoa is behind it and Krakoa Mm -hmm. knows through a combination of Destiny and Cypher for some reason is the come up mutant of the decade, you must feel like you backed the right horse.
0: I'm going to chalk it up to I've been talking about how Cypher is my favorite X-Men character for years. Jordan D. White, editor of the X-Men line, even before he was editor of the X-Men line, used to come to our live show all the time and always heard me talk about how great Cypher was. I think, I think this is all on me. I think I did you this. You
1: spoke it into being. Wow. Yes, exactly. You're the Ogun of Cypher. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean that uh, as a villain. A dream. A villain. Oh, okay.
0: A uh, bunch of other things happened in this issue that wait, I going to to. Wait, wait. So, sorry. Well, I yeah, just want
1: to finish sorry. what I was saying. Um, so if Krakoa is manipulating and then Krakoa is putting everyone on the board where they need to be, like for instance, Forge gets placed in the Vault, uh, which is setting up this Children of the Vault series that we're getting in a couple weeks. So like it it all does feel sort of intentional. Does that make you feel better about all of this or just like, Hey, that's fucked up Island. You (laughs) let everybody die or let all these people die. it,
0: It feels if that is actually what's going on, it feels a little bit like a doctor strange saying there's only one scenario where we win, where he has to let all these God awful things happen to the entire MCU before ultimately they get to that one scenario where they actually beat Thanos. Um, here, maybe it's the same sort of thing. Again, this is a lot of assumptions here, but if Krakoa knows what's going on and Krakoa is trying to put the X-Men in a place where they can eventually beat Orcus, because ultimately, like we know, the big bad isn't Orcus, the big bad is the phalanx out there. That's still the big threat that is over the entirety of the Marvel Universe. They got to get to that place first. They got to get through this fall of X to ultimately fight back about that and that eventuality.
1: Uh, Let me ask you this Do you think uh, The larger the island The more they know about stuff?
0: Long Island Very knowledgeable Manhattan Doesn't know much
1: Yeah Wow Controversial take I don't know what Long Island knows Outside of (laughs) Billy Joel songs And um, That's
0: all you really need to know To get through (laughs) in life All right. I do want to get to some other things that happened here. One thing that I thought was great about this is this storyline really seems to be paying tribute to a lot of the other storylines that have happened. We talked about this as well in our Stack podcast. But we see Dr. Stasis is reading a newspaper and the headline is Mutant Massacre. I... Hey, mind you, like it feels bad, but I love the idea of flipping Mutant Massacre, this classic storyline that was so harrowing for the Morlocks and the mutants in the Marvel Universe, to take that and have Orcus, who is this villain here, reappropriate that to make it about mutants massacring humans. That's mm-hmm. awful in exactly the right way. Same yeah. as. Dr. stasis revealing that Prisoner 10, aka Prisoner X, I don't think they're being, you know, they're being a little winky there, is Cyclops sewing his eyes shut and crucifying him on an X, like that iconic, I think it was a Mark Silvestri cover of Wolverine mm. crucified on the X back in the Australian era. Definitely took that there as well. So there's a lot of this stuff going on, plus the fact that at least part of the resistance led by Sink is huddled in the Morlock tunnels that, again, calls back to that Mutant Massacre storyline. I think there's a lot of shout-outs there, um, and I like that. I like paying tribute to the history.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's it's a good way of showing, like, hey, this story is hugely important and matters, and it's really well-considered, so we're going to touch on all these things, while also moving into a lot of new territory, like the Children of the Vault stuff that is coming like all the stuff that happens on Arako, mm-hmm. uh, where Shadowcat goes through the gate and um, meets this mutant. And like, there's a Hulk like dude there as well. Mm-hmm. And they seem to be looking for Polaris. A lot of question marks like Arako yeah. in general is sort of like, ah, did we quite figure out what this means in the X-Men universe? I don't know.
0: The, other part of this storyline, though, with Dr. Stasis, when Orcus is doing and Fei Long and all of these other characters that we've been following through various titles, I thought brings a classic X Men trope that of the government bringing out sentinels and being like, we have to do something about that mutant threat in a very updated way, which I like. Like it feels very of the fake news era yeah. of. Dr. Stasis says this out loud. I think it's the Cyclops of the Seed where he's essentially torturing him, where he's like, right now, we're your best allies. We're saying, oh, we're looking for them. We're trying to help the mutants and help the humans. We're trying to cure them of their mutant disease and get them off Earth. It's this way of manipulating the media and manipulating the people in the Marvel Universe that I think – Again, is uh, X-Men always excels when it reflects the world outside of our window. And this is something we're very much still dealing with today. And the fact that they're playing on that for the villains of the piece, I think is very smart.
1: Well, and especially the Phelong um, stuff that spun out of Iron Man, taking over uh, Stark Enterprises and making the Sentinels look like Iron Man, I think is just super smart. Because if I see a giant robot, it, ran, it looks like just purple. I'm just like, yo bad. Mm-hmm. But if I see a robot that looks like my favorite hero, I'm like,
0: oh, it could be good. Yeah. If I see a giant purple robot, I'm like, oh, God, is it Grimace's birthday again? McDonald's has gone too far. Too Let's just say far. it. Too I far. I agree. Let's make a statement here on How the podcast. How many birthdays
1: does this purple guy have a year at this point?
0: A couple of other notes I wrote down about this issue that I really liked. I loved the image of, since the gates don't work anymore, people putting tribute photos to those they've lost directly on the gate. I thought that was very nice with it glowing in the background. This was specifically in Washington Square Park. Also in that same scene, we see Firestar in front of everybody being like, yep, I've been feeding them information all along, but there's this thing where she turns to the gate, and you can just very subtly see a tear going down her cheek. Um, she needs to be better about hiding the tears. Yes, She's going to be a double
1: agent. I read that, and I was like, yo, come on, Firestar. Again, in. why that did Jean Tear Ray Tear choose Tear Tear you? <laughs> Burn it off. Oh, your eyes are steaming, Firestar. Mm-hmm. Nothing to see here, she yes. says.
0: Also, quick shot of Ben Yurick reporting on the scene at Washington Square Park, which was very fun. Always good to see him. There was a weird little thing, and maybe you could explain this to me, where in the Borlock Tunnels? Kitty comes back and Sink is there, leading them. And she's like, "I'm hurt. I gotta go." She goes through a wall, says, "Knock, knock through the wall." Sink sighs, and then he's also on the other side of the wall. Maybe, I, maybe I misunderstand or don't know what his powers are. Are there usually two of them, or was this just like a time dash or something? Well, Sink can take her powers and just walk through the wall. Oh, is that what he does? Yes, yeah, It's not uh, S no, I N K.
1: It's S-Y-N-C-H. I thought he
0: could sync your playlist with your laptop. I thought. That was <laughs> I bet he could do that, too. That's the power mm-hmm. I have. Yeah. I
1: I'm i loved- the cipher for um, Spotify playlists.
0: We do get the detail of what was going to be the innovation the X-Men were going to present at the Hellfire Gala. Forge was going to make tree houses for everyone. Delightful.
1: I mean, I was like, that's what it was? (laughs) Come on, dude. Sustainable living,
0: man. Green space. Help the whole earth. We should do this in real life. I'm not joking. Come on. There's all this empty opti space converted to green
1: space, idiots. Call me Forge, because when I was eight, I wanted to live in a treehouse, too. So I guess I'm a techno (laughs) mutant genius. Uh, what did you think I about the whole that plot weird.
0: line? You mentioned this earlier, but the whole plot line where Emma dresses in her to give a Riverdale shout out, Monica Posh outfit and brings Kamala, uh, Kamala Khan home to her parents. She frames up wiping their memories that she's ever been gone as a, a kindness to them. And she's going to thank her. There's always very dicey. I think moral lines that you're crossing there. When you wipe any character's memory in any sort of media, How did you take it? Do you think it is a good thing? Do you think it's a bad thing? Does it not matter?
1: Well, I think morally, um, I mean, we've done this happens. A White Queen, that's like her main thing. If it's her three card Monty. So she's always doing that. I don't mind it from a, from a, that choice to me, when we get the Miss Marvel stuff and the larger unity squad uncanny adventures is the part where things I'm like, what is this going to mean? That's where it gets a little wobbly. Miss Marvel is coming from the outside. Now she's a a main stage mutant. I don't know what it's about. I don't know how Mm -hmm. involved in the main story she is. And it feels like it's at least on the fringes. We get Deadpool just hanging out here. And I'm like, right, he's a mutant. But he's sort of still goofing around. So, like, I, I'd like to – I'm curious what all these other wider characters take.
0: In there space. was this issue, even though I liked chunks of it, it did feel like a little bit of a wash of, okay, got to set up four more titles now at this point. Let's go and threw that yeah. stuff out there. Um, so even if I like the ideas – Like you're saying, it was a little distracting, but also at the same time, that's kind of classic X Men, right? Like going back to the Chris Claremont run where he's like, here's two pages that won't pay off for 30 issues from now. Enjoy. But that's
1: also, but I don't know if that's what this is. I feel like this stuff is going to pay off soon. Yes. I just don't know how central it is. And when you get out into where Captain America is involved, I'm like, this guy's busy. Like, what's, how much of this is, how much of this is going to be a a central pillar to this one? With the X Men, you're like, Psychops well, is going to be a central pillar here because he's uh, chained to an X with his eyes sewn shut.
0: Yeah. Last thing that I'll mention that I really dug was the art page of the back, the poster that they've been putting up where it says Magneto can no longer use this gate. Thanks, Orcus! Which feels like almost the flip of the classic Magneto was right thing for the Grant Morrison run. So yeah, like that, I'm sure that'll be showing up in comic book shops very soon.
1: Yeah. Magneto
0: famously dead right now. Yes. At the moment, he's there's going another back one. There's another one over in Scarlet Witch. And I do think, well, he's yes, that's his
1: clone, Joseph clone slash right. like buddy slash villain slash who knows what his point is right now. But there's been so much Magneto mentioning. I feel like he's coming
0: back. I agree. Um, why don't we move on? I'm sure there's plenty more to say about this issue, but why don't we move on and talk about Astonishing Iceman, which I thought was great. Uh, much more direct than the X-Men issue. Just yeah. following Iceman. He is a hero out in the world. Everybody loves him. You've got these Orcus villains over on the Bloom and Orbital Space Station who are acting like, oh God, I was trying to remember what it is. It's sort of like the Venture Brothers villains a little bit, where it's all like very <laughs> business-like. Yeah. Um, trying to take him down and setting around memos about how they got to get rid of Iceman. Um, but the thing that I thought was best about this is while Iceman outside is almost the opposite of Kitty here, where he's being cheerful and he's kissing dudes yeah. in the street that he saves, he barely makes it back to his new Fortress of Solitude, to a place where his boyfriend, Romeo, is literally and figuratively the only person who is holding him together right now. And yeah. just... You put that metaphor out there, it works so well, it makes so much sense after how utterly he was destroyed in the fight with Nimrod. I thought this was great. This is Steve Orlando, again, just throwing such a clear premise out of the first issue. I really liked it a lot. Well, it's a big
1: swing and a big status quo quo shift for Iceman. And it almost feels like this is carrying on the Hickman first phase vibe, where it's like, you know Mm -hmm. what, I'm going to take a big swing here. It's not going to be about just moving the story forward, we're going to sort of restart Iceman with this very specific situation. He's got a ticking clock anytime he leaves the Antarctic base, but he's trying to live life to the fullest. Technically, I don't know if he's alive. Technically, he, right. he's he's just a, an emotional imprint almost pushed into living ice. Right? That that's my takeaway. Yeah. It's a I little mean, confusing.
0: I think that's what it is. You know, they explain Romeo's powers. Romeo is an inhuman, and he grows closer to somebody the more emotion he feels about them. Clearly, Romeo and Bobby are in love. He there's this great line about how Romeo was the last face he saw before he died, and the first face he saw when he came back to life. Yeah. So to your point. I don't know which direction they're going to go in, but I could see a world where I think this one is a mini series specifically. I could see a world where this ends where Iceman is like, You got to let me go, you know, because yeah. that's Romeo being trapped in this ice palace monitoring. They have this really cool like insignia thing that they explained at the end where it's basically yeah. Romeo staring at it the entire time and monitoring how much Iceman is falling apart at all times so that he can bring it back if necessary. There, there's a world where Iceman's like, you have to go on with your life. You can't yeah. spend all of your time just holding me together. Um, and if that is, that's going to be heartbreaking.
1: Well, it feels like, I mean, it's a tragic, this could be just a tragic miniseries. that is like a metaphor for dating someone who is dealing with uh, other, their own personal problems. Cause that's what mm-hmm. it feels like. It feels like Romeo has to watch Iceman the, his entire life and literally keep him going. And eventually it's going to be like, Hey, like you said, you have to let me go. And all that all that tragic potential story here is packaged in like fun superheroics mm-hmm. and the next villain being Helium, the unfreezable man. And it's just like it feels like classic early comic, like Silver Age comic book stuff mm-hmm. with this huge emotional underpinning, which I think thematically is what the X-Men are across the line right now.
0: Mm -hmm. And I'll throw Can I throw out A very stupid theory to you Uh, Please uh, Finally Here we go This is my first Stupid theory of the podcast Here we go (laughs) So Iceman goes back To this place where Romeo is And it's a little bit Fortress of Solitude But it's also a ice palace He summons this Very chunky looking snowman To help him out And Romeo is sitting on the throne That's what I was going to say It's very frozen What does Elsa say? Let it go Wow. So nice. Romeo is the Elsa in this case, and I think he might need to let Bobby go. That doesn't mean that Iceman's going to be dead forever. As we were just talking with the Khan, she was dead for two what? months, I think, something like that. If I mean, that.
1: I come, feel like she I, died in Spider-Man, we got her death book, and then she was alive the, the next, it was yeah. like six weeks, maybe.
0: They got to sort this out, man. I don't know, the whole death thing in th- comics, that's, that's too quick. Um,
1: Wow. That's too quick. Anyway, it's a really good
0: issue. I I like this one a lot. It does feel tonally opposite from what's going on in X-Men, and I think that's a great place to be, to have two books that feel so distinct coming out in the same week is really nice. Um, I did want to ask you one last thing before we start to wrap up here. So the question that I wrote down initially is, is this a crossover or more of a vibe? And Mm. what I mean by that is, we are talking a little bit about Jonathan Hickman's chapters or parts of his overall story, where this fit in. We didn't really talk about the fact that, and I'm forgetting the exact order of this, but there was Reign of X, Destiny of X, and now we're getting Fall of X. I think they're framing it as more like, this is a line-wide label, and we do have yeah. an overarching arc here, but it's not like everything explicitly ties into everybody, everything else. Is that, is that your sense of it as well, or what do you take away
1: yeah, I feel like we when we were growing up reading comics, it was like, if there's a crossover, it was a plot-based crossover. And each new issue drove the plot forward. And you, if you didn't read that issue, you didn't know what was happening. When now it's shifted to like this other, there's a framework, there's the main title, and then there's other titles that that take place during that time. So there's like a, a, uh, a linear uh, lineup there, but also I think thematically, I think what they're doing here with fall of X, because it is such a, to your point vibe, Mm -hmm. this feels like the Iceman book feels like it's not going to drive the major plot forward, but it is going to be this emotional, uh, emotionally tied into like this character is falling and we're going to, Sadly, watch it happen with some some fun uh, like
0: magic technology that is he's going to fight in different issues. Uh, well, there you go. Any other things you wanted to say about these issues before we start to wrap up here?
1: I I'm loving these. Like you said, the pairing these two uh, issues together is a nice like um, uh, zig and zag or it's nice yin and yang pivot here. So. I just want, I want more. I'm ready to for, to hit a couple more titles so that we can really get the story going. and it's Well, team. Justin,
0: I'm glad you asked about that because I can tell you what is next in the Fall of X reading order. Here's what's coming out next week from the X-Men line. We've got Immortal X-Men number 14, which is going to focus mm-hmm. on Charles Xavier alone on a beach being super bummed out, living his worst life, basically. Yeah.
1: Castaway, but but Wilson is his giant uh, lollipop helmet.
0: <laughs> I hope he draws. I hope he draws Magneto's face on his helmet and starts talking yeah. to it. That would be fun. You were right. And, and then we got Children of the Vault number one, following up specifically on that Forge page that dropped in X Men twenty five. I think it is. Cable and Forge and somebody else, I don't remember who, fighting back against the Children of the Vaults were pissed because they've been locked away forever by X Men. Uh, and then the last one, which is a little bit of a question mark in my mind, I'm not actually sure if this is a Fall of X title or not. It wasn't totally clear, but we're getting Ghost Rider Wolverine Weapons of Vengeance Alpha number one, which is going to kick off an actual crossover between the Wolverine issue and Ghost Rider. My sense of it is at best it's going to be Wolverine is bubbed out, but he's doing Ghost Rider stuff. So we'll have to read that one. In and see whether we talk about it.
1: Well, honestly, I think it does tie in, at least on the list I saw, because it's like Wolverine wants vengeance, so he's bringing up his old buddy Ghost Rider that he used to hang with in the new Fantastic Four. There you and go. They're going to go on a vengeance ride. What more vengeance on the docket of who needs vengeance mm-hmm. of Ghost Rider? Like the Ghost Rider memos that go around? <laughs> X-Men got to be high up there.
0: Oh, man. That Ghost Rider group chat got to be fire. Oh, Pun yeah, the thread. Yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you for listening in. We're going to keep going with this Fall of X stuff for the time being because we appreciate all of the feedback that you all gave us. But if you want to support this podcast and all the podcasts, we do patreon.com slash comic book club. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. to Facebook and YouTube coming out. We'd love to chat with you about Fall of X, except for Pete, who would not love to chat with you about Fall (laughs) of X. Barely. Yeah. Apple, Spotify, not Stitcher, because Stitcher is going away at the end of the month. If you are subscribed there, please subscribe literally anywhere else. At Comic Book Live on X, Comic Book Club Live on TikTok. Oh, and great tie-in. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to be talking about Fall of X in, in terms of Twitter. <laughs> on
1: the <next> yeah. Episode. <laughs> yeah, the Fall of X is happening fast.
0: Yes, ComicBookClubLive.com for this podcast and many more. Until next time, them X's, they just keep falling.
1: Feels like we just can't talk about the X-Men for any time less than 40 minutes.
0: <laughs> There's a lot to say. There's a lot, a lot to say. To say. Club, they sit on crappy couches and they let the secret leak. And occasionally they...